The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This content may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. And before I could even blink, one of the men jumped out of the van, opened the back door, and approached me quickly in an aggressive manner. Alan, got some masks, rope in a bed, and a gun in the trunk. Let's rob the Beckers. Then came the laughter. The same deep, sinister laughter I'd heard before. Only this time, it sounded much closer. From Disturbed Media, join your host, Chad, for true tales of horror, bizarre happenings, and unexplainable events. This is Disturbed. Big thanks to Territory Foods for supporting Disturbed. Territory is a chef-driven marketplace of sustainably sourced, nutritionally dense, ready-to-eat meals. To save $75 across your first three orders and get free shipping, go to TerritoryFoods.com and use promo code DISTURBED. Welcome back in, everyone, and thanks for joining me. Today, I'm bringing you four true horrifying tales that are sure to keep you up at night. So sit back and listen close as we dive into the horror. We open the show with an email submission from Kiki and introducing our newest storyteller, Danuta Marie, and we see how acting in the right moment can be a lifesaver. This happened in the early 2000s. 2002, I think, in New York City, when I was in my mid-twenties. My friend, we'll call her Caitlin, was apartment hunting and found an ad online that piqued her interest. The ad was placed by a man who said his roommate had moved out and he was looking for someone new to take the second bedroom. When I've told this story to others, some people have thought it was weird that a girl would consider having a male roommate, but in my experience, this was common enough. There were no pictures of the apartment. This was in the early days of advertising apartments online, but the neighborhood and description of the place sounded extremely promising. If you were a single woman looking for an apartment in the city, it was typical and indeed expected that you would bring a friend to accompany you for your safety. So Caitlin asked if I would go with her to check it out. She and I had both noticed that the price the guy was asking for the share seemed like an amazingly good deal for what was one of the nicest areas of Manhattan. Almost a little too good to be true. This was definitely an area neither of us would have thought we could afford. But sometimes otherwise swanky neighborhoods had blocks that were a little run down, or maybe the building or apartment itself had simply seen better days. 
Or maybe, just maybe, it would be one of those little New York miracles that everyone hoped for. A great place for a great price. At any rate, it seemed like it couldn't hurt to go check it out. Caitlin and the tenant had been corresponding by email and had never actually spoken on the phone. Texting was a thing in those days, but it wasn't the most common form of communication. At least not in my circle of friends. After exchanging a few emails, they set something up and she and I went over at the agreed-upon day and time. I remember it was an especially beautiful early autumn day. The block the building was on was gorgeous, lined with trees that were just starting to turn a lovely yellow-orange and immaculately clean, a rare thing in the city. We looked at each other and laughed, and talked about how we must have misread the price somehow. There was no way an apartment in this area, even a share, would go for that price. Unless, as we had speculated before, the building or apartment itself was a dump, or this was an incredible stroke of luck. When we got to the building, it was just as beautiful as the rest on the block were. A stately 19th century brownstone with ivy trailing down the facade, and wrought iron window boxes overflowing with flowers. Caitlin called from her cell to let the guy know that we were there, but he didn't pick up. People didn't seem as tethered to their phones in those days, though, so this wasn't a big deal. The door to the building was unlocked, slightly unusual for New York, and not the safest thing, but not unheard of either. My own building's front door was often left slightly open by tenants coming and going. He had given her the apartment number in his email, so we decided to just go ahead. It was on the second floor, and we quickly found it and knocked. There was no answer for a bit, and we thought maybe we were being stood up. We decided to knock again and wait for a moment, and this time we heard the sound of the deadbolt turning and the chain latch being released. The door opened, and a tall, thin man, perhaps around 30, stood before us. His dark hair was about shoulder length and very lank and greasy looking. I remember he was also balding on top. He wore the sort of glasses that have now come to be commonly referred to as serial killer glasses. This particular pair resembling the ones that Jeffrey Dahmer wore in his mugshots. And this was still before hipsters had started wearing them, so it didn't seem like an ironic fashion choice. His expression seemed both blank and staring at the same time, if that's possible. He just said, Come in, ladies, in a voice that, I kid you not, sounded so much like Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs that I felt a chill run up my spine. I immediately had a bad feeling, but Caitlin stepped inside and I followed. I tried to tell myself I was being silly. Just because he looked weird and slovenly didn't mean he was dangerous. As soon as we got inside, the door opened right into the living room. He closed the door and locked both locks. But again, most people in New York do exactly this the minute they close their doors, just out of habit. As soon as I had a second to take in the surroundings, though, I went from feeling uneasy to feeling my blood run cold. The apartment was dark. Not a light on anywhere that I could see except for one dim lamp there in the living room. It was then that I noticed that the windows were blacked out with tinfoil. The kitchen was on the other side of the living room, to our left as we were standing there. There was just enough light from the lamp to see that it was filthy, and not a normal single guy level of filth. There were dishes stacked everywhere, piles of food and garbage. I could make out roaches crawling around, and I'm sure I would have seen maggots if there had been enough light. The smell was the next thing I remember hitting me. It could have just been the disgusting kitchen, but I swear this didn't just smell like rotting food and garbage. This smelled worse, like a rotting animal carcass like death. 
the very next thing he said was, Come on, let me show you the bedroom, and motioned for us to follow him down a nearly pitch black hallway. As if we both immediately knew what the other was thinking, Caitlin and I turned to each other and without saying a word, we both shook our heads, eyes wide with fear. I remember mouthing the word no. Before I knew it, either Caitlin or I had slid open the chain and turned the deadbolt. It all happened so fast, I don't even remember. We ran as fast as we could out of that apartment, down the hallway and down the stairs. We were on total fear autopilot. We didn't stop running until we were halfway down the block. The next day, Caitlin got a one-sentence email from the guy which just read, Very, very rude behavior, ladies. Looking back, the guy could have been mentally ill, or just a weird, dirty, socially awkward dude. And sure, it was rude to just bolt out of his apartment like that. But this guy just seemed so off and completely out of place in that building. The very first thing he wanted to do was lead us down a dark hallway to a back bedroom and he literally fit every serial killer stereotype to a T. I have never before or since felt such unadulterated, bone-chilling fear as I did in that room. I truly believe our intuition telling us to just run as fast as we could out of there may have saved our lives that day. Next up, we hear from Reddit user Excuse You What, featuring voice work by Sarah Thomas. And we very nearly become the next missing person. I apologize in advance since I'm not a good writer, but I'll do my best to share my experience. To better paint the picture, here is a description of myself at the time of this incident, three years ago. Five foot five, 26 year old woman, medium length bleach blonde hair, curvy 175 pounds, wearing black high waisted tights and a pink crop top. Three years ago, I was walking home late at night from my friend's house. It was dark, and at the time, I lived in a rough part of a large city. I've had many sketchy situations that I have gotten myself out of, so I guess I felt sort of invincible. Like nothing truly scary could happen to me. When I walk alone, I always stay very alert and aware of my surroundings for my own safety, just in case. About halfway home and roughly 10 minutes to my apartment, I noticed a van started tailing me. I was used to this since in my city, it's very common for a young woman in a rough area to get propositioned for sex. It's embarrassing how desensitized to this I was. I did my usual and crossed the road so that I would be walking beside the traffic heading in the other direction. I wasn't scared, just annoyed. The van then turned down a side street, then back onto the road I was on and pulled up to me. At this point, I still wasn't scared. Again, this has happened so many times and it never mattered if I was wearing something that showed more skin or if I was wearing a winter coat zipped from below my chin all the way down to my ankles. That area is notorious for that type of activity. I decided to be firm and told the person sternly, I'm not interested. I noticed there were two men in the van. They looked almost identical and may have been twins or brothers. Both men had a very dark complexion, dark eyes and short dark hair. The van didn't move. I was super annoyed and crossed the road again to get away. At this point, I figured this would be enough for them to stop following me. They didn't. They kept circling back 
every time I cross the road. I've never had to put that much effort into getting a horny pervert to leave me alone. So this is when I started feeling unsafe. They zipped by me at the speed the traffic was flowing in and I yelled for them to fuck off. I thought it finally worked. It had been three minutes and I hadn't seen the van, so I thought I was in the clear. Just in case, I pulled my phone out and was getting ready to call my sister that I lived with. Just then, the van pulled up to me very quickly, and before I could even blink, one of the men jumped out of the van, opened the back door, and approached me quickly in an aggressive manner, as if he was about to scoop me up and throw me into the vehicle. The traffic in that area is very inconsistent. It was dead, and I imagined that is what they were waiting for. Just as the man was about to place his hands on me, I tilted my phone and said, You're being filmed in my live video chat. I gave my friends your license plate number and the police have been notified. I was so scared, but I didn't let that show. I stayed as calm as I could. The man paused like he was considering if I was bluffing or telling the truth. So I tilted the phone more as if to give the fake audience a better look at him. He then jumped into the van and they sped off. I have never been the same since that night. I'm afraid of walking alone now, even in the daytime. Stay safe out there. Two creeps in a van? Let's not ever meet. I hope karma finds you both soon. We need to get rid of some evidence. Don't go anywhere. Thanks to our newest sponsor, Territory Foods, for supporting Disturbed. Territory is a chef-driven marketplace of meals that are sustainably sourced, nutritionally dense, and ready to eat in just 90 seconds. And here's what I love. They use only healthy fats, clean proteins, and tons of sustainably harvested seasonal produce. Now the entire menu is free of gluten, inflammatory oils, dairy, and refined sugar. That sounds pretty great, doesn't it? You'll find 10 different plans to choose from, including the Mediterranean diet, paleo, vegan, whole 30, and keto friendly. Or you can bypass the diet and just choose what you like best. But what are you actually going to get? How about menus featuring as many as 90 items per week? And they even adapt to the seasons and latest food trends. So there's always something brand new to try. Now the meals are delivered twice a week, so you know they're always fresh. And if you're anything like me, you don't want to be locked into a commitment. And with Territory, that's not a problem, because you can pause or cancel your meals at any time. And as for me, I just put my first order in, and let me tell you, I cannot wait to get these meals and get started. So to save $75 across your first three orders, plus free shipping, go to TerritoryFoods.com and use promo code DISTURBED. That's $75 you can save across your first three orders, along with free shipping, by going to TerritoryFoods.com with the promo code DISTURBED. And as always, supporting our sponsors helps support the podcast. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, 
Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Now back to the deliciously frightful. Disturbed Podcast with your host, Chad. Up next, we have an email submission from Ray, featuring voice work by Matt Bradford, and we meet Uncle Paul. This story goes back about 26 years ago, but the backstory goes back even further. In 1991, my uncle, who we'll call Carl, was imprisoned for murdering his two- or three-year-old nephew. Yeah, Carl was into the party scene at that time and used a lot of cocaine. And when he was arrested, he was still stoned, passed out on the sofa, and was speaking nonsense when they woke him, and was unable to verbally defend himself. Now fast forward to 1998. I was an 18-year-old teenage boy at the time. I moved from New Brunswick, I'm in Canada, to Ontario, and was living with my dad. Now, things at my dad got strained around two months in, and I moved in with my aunt, Sylvie. I didn't know that her husband at the time was abusive to her until I was there for about a month, so I left, moving to my Uncle Paul's place. My Uncle Paul then was about 31 years old, was common-law married to a lady, Eva, who was about uh, 25 years older than he was, and we all got along well. I started working with Paul doing odd jobs like uh, painting decks in people's backyards and such. This is where it gets weird. So, I'm almost 19 and I start experiencing odd behaviors from Paul. I'll list a few below and cap it all off. He told me that we should take our shirts off while doing painting jobs because the clients really get off on that sort of thing. This seemed strange, and I declined it because I didn't care who wanted my shirt off. I wasn't comfortable with the idea. Then came the night in June. I was very much, you know, a night owl, and I would stay up really late playing Super Nintendo. And Mortal Kombat 2 was my jam. And when I got bored of that, I'd watch old horror movies on VHS or you know, whatever I could find that was interesting on cable. One night, I found a weird documentary about BDSM and dominatrixes. Watched about half of it and went to bed. The next morning when I got up, I was telling Paul about it and he got really upset. He insisted that I should have woken him up so that we could watch it together. And that no matter what time, day or night, if something like that came on TV, I should let him know. So that he could watch it. So the next thing was when we were driving home from a painting gig. This was early July 1998 and it was just getting dark. We were driving home from a painting gig in a Z28 and there was very little in the way of other cars or traffic around. Paul saw a Becker's convenience store, a gas bar, and he nudged me with his elbow saying, Hey, we should rob that Becker's. I said, What? And he repeated himself, adding, Now I've got some masks, rope, and a bat, and a gun in the trunk. Let's rob the Beckers. 
I said sarcastically, but not at all sarcastically. Fuck off, man. And chuckled. He then gave me a fake chuckle and said, <laughs> Just kidding. The next day, Paul took Eva's daughter's BMW to work, so I grabbed the keys to the Z28 and opened the trunk. Everything was there except for the gun. I was sick to my stomach. I told my dad about it and he said that he knew about the gun and that it was in a compartment under the floor of the truck. And then, uh, you know, I, I woke up several times with an uneasy feeling. And when I roused from my sleep, I'd see Paul just standing there, several feet away, staring at me from the darkness. I'd ask him what he was doing, and he'd just sort of shrug and go back upstairs. So the last straw for me was Paul calling for me to come upstairs, saying that he and Eva didn't want to watch a movie without me. I didn't see a problem with that, so I headed up to the main floor living room and no one was there. So I called out to Paul asking where they were. He replied that he and Eva were upstairs. So I went up and stopped in their doorway. He was only wearing underwear, and Eva was wearing a sheer nightie. I asked when they'd be ready to watch the movie, and he said that they were ready now and to come in. Yeah, I asked what we were watching, and he told me that it was a movie that he and Eva made together. I asked, like a porno? And he replied, yeah. I said, uh, nope. And I immediately went downstairs and called my dad, telling him to come get me now, which he did. I started telling him about all of this when we got to my dad's, and that's when Paul called me at my dad's yelling on the phone that I, I shouldn't talk about any of this or else. I told him to fuck himself and hung up. I moved to Quebec the next day. Fast forward 10 years later, one of my other uncles, who I'd never met, told me that he had been talking to my dad. It had been estranged up to that point, and that my dad told him about the events of the prior decade. He then told me that one of the reasons he had been estranged from the other siblings was because that he didn't believe that Carl, still in prison, had murdered Paul's kid. He believed that Paul killed the kid himself. See, Paul's whereabouts were unknown for the evening that the kid was murdered. And when the police arrived at the scene, Paul told Sylvie, the aunt I'd lived with, that he wanted her to say that he had been with her that evening, which she did. But he didn't provide an explanation to Sylvie as to his whereabouts of that night. Paul ended up getting a lot of monetary donations from people all over the city who grieved for him and his loss. I mean, easily tens of thousands of dollars. And plus, the city's biggest newspaper paid for a lavish funeral for his kid. I firmly believe that when I lived with Paul, I was living with a murderer and a sexual deviant, and that had I stayed and watched the movie with he and Eva, that something bad would have happened to me. And if not then, eventually, whether it was physical or sexual abuse or being talked into something that could have got me arrested. Sadly, Carl died in prison of cancer, never having wavered on his innocence. And Paul, well, the last I heard, he was living with an 18-year-old girl, and he would be about 57 now, and both are hopelessly addicted to drugs. I haven't seen or spoken to him in 26 years, and I hope I never do. Paul has gotten away with all of this, and possibly more. It doesn't even begin to tell the story of the rest of the side of my family. Paul, I sincerely hope we never meet again. And finally, our title story coming to us from Reddit user Forlabaster. 
featuring voice work by Nina Instead, host of the Already Gone podcast. And we have a rare experience with the gentlemen of Baron Falls. I was camping in far north Queensland, Australia, in a place called Baron Falls, which is northwest of Cairns. I, a 21-year-old girl, was camping with two male friends who were backpacking from Estonia, Theo and Charlie. Where we set up camp was not an official campsite. Rather, we walked along the tourist path, climbed over a railing, followed a train track for a few kilometers, and eventually veered off into the dense forest, downhill to the river. It certainly wasn't easy to get to this area, and there wasn't any mobile phone service. But Theo knew about the location from friends who had shown him previously. The site was beautiful. We were surrounded by a tropical forest and were only a short walk upstream from the waterfall. After setting up camp, we walked to the waterfall where both Charlie and Theo plunged from the cliff into the water below. I decided not to follow. I am afraid of heights and the possibility of hurting myself. So I sat and watched them for a while before deciding to return to camp and read my book. I was totally relaxed, enjoying the serenity, taking in the beauty around me. What had been an exciting, adventurous day was then interrupted by a deep, sinister laugh coming from the forest surrounding our campsite. Instantly alerted, I felt chills run through my body as I scanned the forest trying to detect where the laughter had come from. There was nothing. I tried to forget about it, convincing myself that my mind was playing tricks on me. Theo and Charlie returned and told me they'd forgotten fire lighters for the campfire. They said they'd need to travel to the nearest store to buy some, and that I should wait at camp. I told them that I didn't feel comfortable staying at camp by myself, but I didn't mention the laughter I'd heard before. I didn't want them to think I was stupid, and for context, at the time, I had quite a large crush on Charlie. Stupidly, I wanted him to think I was cool. They told me I'd be fine, that they'd be back before dark. Reluctantly, I agreed, and they set off. At this point, it's about four o'clock, and I continued reading my book. I began to think about it, and I realized the walk back to the car was about 20 or 30 minutes, so they'd be gone more than an hour. At this time of year, the sun would set around 5.30, and I would therefore likely be alone in this remote area in the dark. I distracted myself with my book, but as dusk descended, I struggled to read the pages and fear began to set in. About an hour later, I heard footsteps in the forest. My first thought was that Theo and Charlie had returned, and I was instantly relieved that I was no longer alone. I listened for their voices, but heard nothing. My heart dropped. It dawned on me that it might not be them, and I started to panic. Then came the laughter. The same deep, sinister laughter I'd heard before. Only this time, it sounded much closer. I sprung to my feet and surveyed the forest. That's when I saw him. He was standing on the other side of a stream which connected to the river. What I saw was absolutely bizarre. A man wearing an immaculate tuxedo, top hat and all. I remember being puzzled as to how he was able to get to this area in such clean, formal clothes, and I thought he might be an apparition, or maybe I was hallucinating. I studied the man's face. It's hard to describe, but he appeared to have suffered from severe burns with deep scarring covering his face. His hair was shoulder length, wiry and unkempt. He laughed, that same laugh I'd heard from the forest. It came from him. We stared at each other for what felt like minutes. 
I'd planned to sprint into the forest if he charged at me and observed that the small creek between us would at least slow him down. Then he spoke. What are you doing here, all alone? He said with an unsettling smile on his face. Luckily, I was able to remain calm and I told him I was camping with my male friends and they went to get supplies, but they'll be back soon. The man laughed. He asked me how long we would be there for. I lied and said we were leaving the next day. It felt like this man wanted to provoke a reaction. He wanted me to panic and run. He wanted to chase me. But I remained calm and acted as if we were having a normal conversation. I think my calm confused him. Miraculously, I heard Theo and Charlie's voices approaching. At the sound of their voices, the man seemed alarmed and said that he saw someone else camping upstream and that he was going to check on them. He left and minutes later, Theo and Charlie returned. I immediately told them what happened and they laughed and thought I was making it up, that this was some lame attempt to scare them. My eyes filled with tears and Charlie realized that I was serious. Theo didn't seem phased. He was a very stereotypical backpacker and had the carefree nature travelers tend to have. Charlie, however, he assured me that I would be okay and had me sleep between him and Theo for the next two nights. I barely slept at all. I kept listening for the laughter, but fortunately, I never heard it again. For years after this incident, I searched online for any reports of similar encounters. I never found anything, but I shudder at the thought of what would have happened if Theo and Charlie hadn't returned at that very moment. Follow our social channels on Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast and on Twitter at Disturbed underscore pod. If you'd like to get your story on the show, we have several different submission options available, and you can find them all at DisturbedPodcast.com. Disturbed is an independent production funded through advertising and your support. And if you'd like to support the show, you can get early access to our premium feed featuring ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Visit patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast to learn more. And a shout out to all of our newest supporters, Amy Morley, Jody Wood, Samantha, Skylar Handy, Yeji Lee, Nicole Sanders, Silver, and Brianna Wilson. Thanks everyone so much for supporting the show. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio and Co.ag. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all. <laughs>